everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Pointers Eurasia podcast, featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russia and Eurasia-related topics. Before the COVID-19 pandemic hit the world, it would never have occurred to anyone to group Belarus together with Sweden. But today, the wealthy Scandinavian country and the poor Eastern European one have something important in common. Neither has followed the rest of Europe into the lockdown. Of course, any parallels between Belarus and Sweden are very superficial, and besides, Belarus has been way more radical than Sweden. For example, the soccer season continued in Belarus long after it had been suspended everywhere else in Europe. Only in May, a few games have been postponed when infections were registered among soccer players. On May 9, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko presided over the annual Victory Day parade in full defiance of the recommendations of the World Health Organization and, as his critics say, in full disregard for his compatriots' health and even lives. But Lukashenko sounded confident and unbending. We couldn't have acted differently, he said, and don't rush to conclusion or condemn us, descendants of the victory of Belarusians. We had no other choice, and even if we had one, we would have done the same. On May 9, festive crowds in the streets of Belarus' capital, Minsk, were celebrating the 75th anniversary of the victory over Nazi Germany. The victory in World War II is an event of paramount symbolic and political importance in Belarus, no less important than in Russia, where, especially under President Putin, it has evolved as a pillar of national identity. President Putin chose to postpone the May 9 parade to a later date, apparently not an easy decision for him to make, but this way he demonstrated that, no matter how grand the occasion of the 75th anniversary, to him the Russian people's health is a higher priority. Belarus is a country of over 9 million people. As we speak on May 19, it has reported over 31,000 people infected with coronavirus. The daily number of infections continues to rise. Some of the new infections are likely the result of the Victory Day festivities. The number of deaths has been reported to be over 170. Why is President Lukashenko exposing Belarusians to such risks? We will talk about this and other Belarus-related topics with my guest Grigory Yofe, who I will introduce a bit later. Up until a few years ago, Belarus was commonly referred to as the last dictatorship in Europe, but in recent years this characterization is heard less frequently. Belarus is undoubtedly an autocratic regime. It also remains the only European country that not only has capital punishments on the books, but death sentences are executed. The same leader, Alexander Lukashenko, has remained at the helm ever since the office of the president was created in Belarus in 1994. While Vladimir Putin has been Russia's leader for 20 years, Lukashenko boasts 26. In August, he intends to run for his office for the sixth time, and there are no signs that the election may be postponed, whatever the epidemiological situation. And Lukashenko is assured of victory. We'll see whether Grigory Yofe agrees with that. Lukashenko has been his country's unchallenged boss, the father of his nation. Just as President Putin, he has been a leader of no alternative who has faced no meaningful opposition. Those who dare oppose him do so at their own risk and may get in serious trouble. Unlike Russia, however, Belarus is not blessed with natural resources, and Lukashenko owes his amazing political longevity to his own savvy and his art of political maneuvering. 
let me introduce my guest. Grigory Yoffe is a professor at Radford University, Virginia. He has for many years studied Belarus and written about the country and its leader, including a book about Lukashenko, published in 2014. Hello, Grigory. Hey, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Uh, so were you surprised by Lukashenko's defiance of the World Health Organization uh, recommendations and uh, the international experience? Uh, well, actually, I have not been surprised, considering Belarus-Sweden comparison that you referred to in the beginning of the introduction. Uh, I don't think it is as far-fetched as you put it. Of course, um, Sweden is a paragon of democratic virtue, uh, whereas Belarus is Europe's last dictatorship. Of course, Sweden has been around forever and Belarus is some nebulous, boggy, marshy construct. But we need to make a choice. What is it that we're talking about? Are we talking about a certain mythology that we're comfortable with or we're talking about the real thing? Uh, you know, in Sweden, 20% of its population are migrants raised in a very different political culture. As for Belarus, its uh, uh, most prominent independent sociologist, Andrei Vardamatsky, uh, recently pointed out that due to coronavirus, uh, the civil society woke up and people are doing everything that the government has neglected, as he put it. He, he called it dilution of cement. Uh, of course, the strength of cement has been largely exaggerated because that was the requirement set by democracy promoters. Also, WHO recommendations are inconsistent and have been inconsistent all along. This is inconsistency is at the core of the current dispute between the United States, or rather the Trump administration, and the WHO. Uh, now, a theory of collective immunity exists, and I can't rule out that somebody whispered uh, something along the lines of this theory into Lukashenko's ear. Uh, and he actually, early on, began to think along the lines that others are thinking right now. That is, that you should not bring the economy to a screeching halt, as there will be more casualties uh, if you do that. Uh, the treatment uh, should not be worse than the disease. Uh, also, uh, a certain reliance on the national health system, which is not bad at all, played its role. So, uh, as a result, uh, Lukashenko made a certain, I would say, rational decision. And I think that uh, as time uh, goes by, he will be vindicated. Okay, so uh, do you believe that uh, his reasonable calculations and the inconsistencies of the recommendations made by WHO are the main reasons? Because in one of your articles lately, you wrote that maybe one of the reasons for Lukashenko's choice, one of his motives, may have been to take a swipe at Putin. I uh, did make this assumption, but that was in conjunction with uh, the military parade, uh, not just you know, with his entire attitude and uh, strategy of fighting coronavirus. Uh, the, the military parade, of course, took place on the 9th of May, uh, whereas uh, in Moscow, of course, it was cancelled or postponed. That was, you know, the situation in conjunction with which I used these words taking a swipe uh, at Putin. Uh, but even this uh, may be put in more, you know, inclusive terms, if you will, 
uh, not just to take a swipe on Putin, but to play the Russian game on, a, uh, on Russia's own turf. Again, I'm talking about this military parade. Uh, mm. If you uh, take a look at uh, the video file, which is still available at the Euronews site, uh, and they broadcasted the entire parade, and you scroll down to the very end, you will unearth virtually an avalanche of laudatory responses from all over the former Soviet Union, including most prominently Russia. Why? Because uh, that way uh, Lukashenko and his country sort of boost their moral status in the, in the eyes of quite a few Russians, and no, uh, not those quasi-intellectual and condescending <laughs> Muscovites. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Russians living, uh, you know, residing all over Russia. And then he really thinks that it was the most important holiday that consolidates people around him and the political elite. I mean, all those that he can count on consolidating. It, 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 like an icing on the cake uh, was the resignation of uh, the ambassador of Slovakia to Belarus an elderly man who visited, who attended the military parade in violation of his country's, uh, you know, uh, his, his own Ministry of Foreign Affairs directions. You, the ambassador of Slovakia, it's a NATO country, Josef uh, Migash uh, is his name. And when he justified his act, he said that, well, I am a son of a partisan and of an anti-fascist. That's why I attended the parade. So I'm telling you this because uh, it uh, exemplifies the attitude of quite a few people to the parade, which the other side referred to as a um, uh, feast uh, during the time of plague or something like that. Okay. Okay, I will make sure to see what the responses were at the end of the parade. Very interesting indeed. So you mentioned appreciation of people in the former Soviet Union, but what about the perceptions of Lukashenko's performance parade and in general his performance during the pandemic in Belarus itself? Are people angry? Do they appreciate their leader being different from almost everybody else? Well, um, in Belarus itself, of course, uh, the public opinion is divided as it has always been divided. Some people are definitely angry. And, and of course, you know, there is a paradox in, in democratic countries, people are angry because their governments closed down their businesses and violated their constitutional norms. In Belarus, however, people are worried. Why is it that uh, the government does not violate any constitutional norms whatsoever? So, of course, this is a paradox. There was a, a sociological survey by a polling firm in late April. They conducted it and unearthed the results in early May. Uh, the polling firm called Satio uh, in Belarus. And the survey uh, showed that, yes, uh, quite a few people would like a cancellation of public events, a quarantine. At the same time, more people... Uh, like 52%, I remember the proportion, worry more about their declining earnings. They, uh, they worry more about the economy than about uh, coronavirus. But some are indeed angry. You're right. It's hard to understand the proportion, you know, who worries about what and how many do. 
but one should always bear in mind that the opposition-minded opinions in Belarus are always subject to a kind of a magnifying glass of sorts. They are in possession of an incredible number of media outlets because during the heyday of democracy promotion, uh, Western you know, sponsors uh, have helped them to sustain an incredible number of uh, media outlets. Uh, they don't even, uh, this number exceeds the demand and even the supply. That's why they uh, often uh, reprint each other's publications. And so all they do these days is vent righteous indignation. It's their only emotion. The extreme case, I guess, was demonstrated, the case in point, but also the extreme case by Irina Khalib, who is a correspondent of Novaya Gazeta in Minsk, and she is a <laughs> seasoned Lukashenko basher. She wrote, this time not in Novaya Gazeta, but on Belsat, there is such a satellite TV, uh, digital TV channel uh, broadcasting from Poland, from Warsaw to Belarus. And she described the current situation in Belarus, this epidemiological situation, as uh, living under temporary military occupation, like during World War II. So that there is a occupying power, it set up its administration, and then uh, the, uh, the people are divided between the partisans and collaborators. Uh, that's, that's how she described the situation. Not everybody is this extreme, of course, but sometimes they babble out or betray what they're mostly afraid of. For example, on May 5th, the Belarusian Service of Radio Liberty, during a talk show, Prague Accent, they seriously discussed the question that was formulated by, by the anchor, Yuri Drakakhrust, what would be if Lukashenko turns out right in the eyes of Europeans? So definitely they dread this. I, I, I wouldn't say that they dread this more than deaths from coronavirus, because that would be like accusing them of bloodthirstiness. <laughs> and I, I would stop short of doing this, but they definitely dread such a situation whereby Lukashenko may be proven right in the eyes of Westerners. Right. Uh, so I guess an assessment that I found in one of the publications that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic may become Lukashenko's Chernobyl moment in your eyes is also a part of this righteous indignation and the more of wishful thinking than the reality. Well, uh, you know, uh, we should probably abstain from uh, such definitive prediction because a lot is unknown in the United States, in Russia, and in Belarus. But comparisons with Chernobyl have been very widespread. I think they have exhausted their potential. Uh, you know, initially, many comparisons along these lines appeared, but then they, they expired. One interesting comment on Lukashenko policy belongs to Yevgeny Komarovsky, who is a Ukrainian pediatrician, a very popular uh, medical doctor and a TV anchor, 59 years old, very popular. Uh, he said that what Lukashenko did in Belarus by not imposing a quarantine is that he took political responsibility. He also said that others who did impose a quarantine are now dreaming that some kind of catastrophe occurs in Belarus. At the very least, politicians don't want a calm 
and to COVID-19 infection um, or epidemiological situation in Belarus because they don't want to face other people suggesting that they should have followed his example. I <laughs> see. That if I were president, I would do exactly what Lukashenko did. Uh, and he said this with, uh, you know, uh, making several qualifications along uh, the same lines that I did, that quite a few things are unknown and uh, we don't know what the best uh, the course of action would be. But that's what he said. Still, if we uh, turn to the healthcare aspect, the number of infections reported so far is quite high and continues to grow. For a country of 9 million, it is, uh, as I mentioned in my introduction, 31,000 as we speak on May 19. However, you mentioned, and I read the same opinion by other experts, that actually the healthcare system in Belarus maybe better than one may expect. And the situation, in fact, with those infected is not that disastrous. What would you say about that? Well, I would rather agree with such an assessment. The only thing, of course, is that you know, there's suspiciously few COVID-19-related causes of death that are reported, like, you know, 175 and so the people who suggest that this may be the case because they assign deaths to uh, other causes may in fact be true because the, the, the number of deaths is very suspicious. I, I know a colleague of mine, Elena Gapova, who is a professor of sociology at Western Michigan University and a native of Minsk, uh, she updates a table uh, every day on her Facebook um, page comparing Michigan with Belarus because it's uh, about the same population. Michigan slightly more, 9.9 .9 million, Belarus 9.5 million. And uh, the number of cases is more or less comparable, but the number of deaths, of course, is not. However, I think that the health system in Belarus, in fact, is in relatively good shape. They managed to retain a lot of, you know, the best qualities of the Soviet system that goes back to, you know, people's commissar Simashka. Uh, <laughs> they indeed have converted large hospitals so they're able to work with COVID-19 infected people. They organize distant work in institutions where it was possible. Mandatory self-isolation and testing have been introduced for contacts of the first and second levels, as well as of those arriving from abroad. Some so-called quarantine corridors were set with separate stopping points for automobile transit, because you know Belarus is a transit country. Then many light industry factories have been reprofiled for the production of personal protection equipment. Ventilators, narcotic breathing apparatuses, computer tomography apparatuses have been purchased. Significant premiums for medical staff were established by Belarusian standards because uh, in Belarus, salaries and wages are very low. And so when you see uh, like a, a markup of 1,000 to 1,500 Belarusian rubles, you need to divide it by 2.4 in order to convert it into dollars. That's quite a bit. And Belarus indeed uh, approached uh, this pandemic with a good material base of its healthcare system by uh, the number of beds, hospital beds per uh, 10,000 people. It is reportedly the fourth country in the world 
in terms of the number of doctors, medical doctors per 100,000 people, it's in the top 10. So they have been preparing their healthcare system for uh, the medical tourism since 2013. Uh, that probably helped too. And the fact that uh, the best um, aspects of the Soviet healthcare system, that perhaps was imperfect, but was not bad at all, uh, should be mentioned as well. Yeah, indeed. Experts uh, now are paying attention to that and turning to the past. And I've seen observations like that, or at least theories like that, that in fact, the Soviet healthcare system, which of course now quite a few countries have at least remnants of, may be a positive factor. And even though not too much attention is paid to Eastern European countries, there was an article, for instance, in the Wall Street Journal about, I think, about a month ago, titled Poor Nations in Europe's East Could Teach the West a Lesson on Coronavirus. So it doesn't go uh, totally unobserved, totally, totally unnoticed. But let's now talk a little bit about the relations between Belarus and Russia or Lukashenko and Vladimir Putin. Of course, countless experts over the years predicted that sooner or later Lukashenko will be unable to withstand Putin's pressure and will have to compromise on his sovereignty. And yet he's been able to keep Belarus reasonably sovereign, even though, of course, it is closely tied to Russia, not least by the Union of Russia and Belarus. Apparently, the coronavirus pandemic should make uh, Belarus even more vulnerable. So how does, how has Alexander Lukashenko managed to stay relatively reasonably independent uh, during these years? And do you think he is indeed more vulnerable now? As far as your uh, second question is concerned, I don't see really kind of a cause and effect uh, reasoning of the kind that you uh, referred to. Maybe I uh, don't understand something, but I don't think that the current situation with the coronavirus change anything in the overall scheme of things as far as the degree of Belarus' uh, sovereignty is concerned. But the most general response to your first question about how uh, Lukashenko managed <laughs> is because he is a consummate politician. He is a, a very smart politician. Relatively few people give him credit for that. Of course, because if the task is to vent righteous indignation, which is uh, the case maybe in three quarters of all sort of exchanges about Belarus, then uh, obviously, you know, you vent this indignation and that's it. Or uh, you may refer to him as a, as a kind of a village idiot and endlessly refer to his last position that he occupied before he became president of Belarus, which was a state farm director. But uh, in fact, Lukashenko is a consummate uh, politician. Obviously, uh, his uh, longevity at the helm of power is a problem. But Belarus is, is not a democratic country, and it doesn't have any democratic tradition to fall back on. And I'm not quite sure that in this milieu, in this uh, context, there, there have been too many options for leaders of uh, comparable foresight and ingenuity to wield power in Belarus. In fact, I would say 
even more. I would say that without Lukashenko, Belarus would have probably become Crimea even before uh, Crimea did, of course. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, By uh, Crimea, in one case, I mean a geographic name. In the other case, a kind of a household name of a territorial unit that fell victim to annexation. So he... Uh, manages to do that just a couple of days ago, you know, yeah, literally a couple of days ago, his uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Vladimir Makei, with a certain pride, declared that they purchased 80,000 tons of American oil that uh, has been uh, loaded onto a tanker somewhere in Texas, in Beaumont, Texas, and will soon uh, arrive in uh, Klaipeda, uh, Lithuania. Of course, uh, 80,000 tons is uh, dropped in the bucket. But the fact is that he committed Belarus to the so-called diversification of oil supply. And that, of course, affects, at least psychologically, it affects Russia because, you know, they're asking why, why would you do that? You know, you, you, you pay more for transportation, you know, you end up not extracting any any benefits. And he said, well, because I don't want to to depend upon you because every 31st of December, I need to kneel before you and ask for some concessions for the new year price-wise. And I just don't want that. So we would rather diversify oil supply with you still being the most important supplier. But with uh, other supplies too. Previously, he purchased some uh, Saudi Arabia's oil. They've been negotiating with Poland about reversing one uh, pipeline, and Poland was not very fond of that idea, but then uh, somebody called from Washington, D.C., and they changed their mind. So uh, uh, Lukashenko is doing all, all he can to retain Belarusian statehood. Well, some people would say he's thinking only about uh, retaining uh, his own power. Well, it appears that these two goals are two sides of the coin <laughs> in today's of the same well, well, I think we'll get uh, in a second to Lukashenko's election prospects, but I want you uh, to probably for our listeners to clarify this point about oil. Apparently, um, Belarus has depended on Russia oil for like ever. Uh, but then at the end of last year, they failed to uh, make an agreement, right? Like they do every year. They failed to make an agreement last year for the imports and I guess transit as well to continue. Is this the case? Well, um, as far as oil is concerned, yes, they did fail to reach an agreement. However, a dramatic decline in oil prices actually helped them to reach an agreement. And they now have agreed about a certain price that nobody knows, but it's very, very low. And it can't be otherwise for at least several months. And so Russia committed itself to supplying 2 million tons of oil a month. But recently, Belarus asked them to supply only 1.1 million tons. Not so much because of alternative sources, but because Europe, under pandemic, its demand for refined oil, and Belarus sells refined oil to Europe, this demand has declined. And the capacity of national storage system about 900,000 metric tons. It's, like, it's just tantamount to what Belarus may receive within two weeks. So they cannot take advantage of low prices to store oil for a rainy day. 
Right. So I think we get now to uh, my last question, and this is about Lukashenko's election prospect. The election is scheduled for August, and I wonder if you agree with what I said earlier, that Lukashenko is sure to win, and the election, of course, is sure to take place. But he seems to have new competitors this time. Is this right? Well, uh, yes. This time, the presidential elections are not without an intrigue, which, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> as many as 55 people tried to apply for registering their so-called initiative groups, Initiativna Grupa, with the Central Electoral Commission. Uh, quite a few have been rejected on some technicalities. Some have been uh, endorsed, but uh, the most important decisions by the uh, Electoral Commission are going to be tomorrow when two people that you probably had in mind when you asked this question, namely Valery Tsepkala, the former ambassador of Belarus to the United States and the founder and a longtime head of the high-tech park in Minsk, very successful uh, institution. He is one of those you know, presidential hopefuls, announced his uh, desire to enter the race Unexpectedly, it was like a bolt from the blue. But then came a decision by Victor Babarico, a banker who had been directing Bill Gazprom Bank, so the, uh, the kind of a, a creature of uh, Russian Gazprom, but it's a financial, Belarusian financial institution for 20 years. He just resigned his post days or maybe a week ago in conjunction with his desire to enter the presidential race. There are many discussions, debates, uh, conspiracy theories, all sorts of things on uh, social networks and in uh, mainstream media outlets as to who actually stands behind these people. Are they uh, genuine volunteers who want to change life and uh, the system of governance in their country, or they are spoilers? that, you know, have been inserted into presidential race by the presidential administration itself to make sure that uh, Lukashenko finally has some serious competitors. And so his electoral win for a change would seem more deserved than if he were competing with the members or leaders of the current pro-Western opposition who have completely lost their clout and actually nobody supports them and, and they're laughable. Or maybe Viktor Babarika is a candidate of the Russian Gazprom. So obviously I am not in possession of any original idea about all of this. I'm only monitoring all these debates. But clearly these two people have inserted some intrigue and otherwise boring exercise of endorsing the status quo. Viktor Babarika, for example, has already about 10,000 people in his initiative group, whereas Sepkala only 555. Why is it important? Because after uh, the first phase of the electoral process, which is the registration of an initiative group, each of these groups will be uh, supposed to collect as many as 100,000 valid signatures from citizens of Belarus in support of their specific presidential hopeful. And collecting 100,000 signatures within a month between the 21st of May and 19th of June or something like that is a daunting task. 
particularly now that many people wouldn't even open the door <laughs> because of uh, because of coronavirus. And so the number of people uh, and, and their willingness to help those uh, candidates is essential. Uh, so we will see what uh, will happen. But this is this is an interesting situation. Previously, you know, unheard of. <laughs> interesting indeed. So come August, we might see a contested election in Belarus. Certainly something to look at. Well, thank you very much, Grigori. Thank you. 